This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, columnist Marina Hyde finds there's never a police officer around when you want one, unless you're an oligarch. Columnist Hadley Freeman meets broadcaster and host of This American Life, Ira Glass, about being a podcast pioneer. Reporter Carrie Paul asks, why are so many people going goblin mode? And finally, Hannah J. Davis talks to model, activist and actor Adora Boa about career inertia, privilege and pain. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we jump in, a quick warning, there's a bit of bad language in this episode. First up, when squatters occupied Oleg Deripaska's house in Belgravia, in London, there was no talk of a lack of resources to haul them out. It is, according to Marina Hyde, indicative of a whole series of compromised institutions who are going to require a significant reset if we truly do mean to stop enabling some of the worst individuals in the world at the expense of pretty much everyone else. Read by Colleen Prendergast. Didn't you love the pictures of a column of Metropolitan Police officers running towards Oleg Deripaska's house like it was a five-storey Greg's? Here they come, trotting with intent, a phalanx of shirt-sleeved, riot-shielded protect and servers who may or may not be available inside of six weeks next time your house is burgled. To recap, four protesters this week occupied a house in London's Belgravia that is supposedly owned by the Russian aluminium magnate Deripaska, now on the UK sanctions list. They unfurled some banners inviting Vladimir Putin to fuck himself and so on before being removed by the largest Met police presence you'll see outside of a women's vigil for someone murdered by a Met police officer. Territorial support group, police negotiators, police climbers, riot police, and, my darlings, one's rarely seen so much hardware. The only big guns they left back at the station were the surface-to-air questionnaires. There were at least eight vans and two squad cars, as well as a JCB, for some reason not being driven by Boris Johnson. Surely the Prime Minister should have just piloted it through the wall of the Belgrave Square house, then emerged from the driver's cabin for the cameras, gurning, get sanctions done? Absolutely no sense of occasion. Alas, despite all these expensive resources, 
the incident drew a viciously self-satirising statement from Deripaska's spokeswoman. We are appalled at the negligence of Britain's justice system shown by Boris Johnson's cabinet in introducing the sanctions and colluding with the sort of people who raid private property, she fumed. It's truly a disgrace that this is happening in a country that is supposed to respect private property and the rule of law. Now, come on, madam. This isn't a raid on private property. It's a special operation. As for the response to it, that is multiples more police than anyone normal in London could ever hope for. To put it in perspective, it's about the volume of hardcore law enforcement you could expect if a woman in Red Square held up a small piece of paper that doesn't even say no war, but simply says two words. But look, before we go any further, I'm not saying that the protesters don't need to be removed from the property. Of course they do. However, as the author and kleptocracy expert Oliver Buller remarked, there must be 20 police officers outside the Belgrave Square property occupied by anarchists, which is, I reckon, approximately 20 more than ever checked the provenance of the money that bought it. Also, not sure we can entirely get behind the spokeswoman claiming to be appalled at the negligence of Britain's justice system. Join the queue. If the oligarchs have an issue with Britain's justice system, Perhaps they should spend less time clogging it up? Honestly, they're never out of it, with their libel suits and their in-group spats and their full-spectrum lawfare. Still, an Englishman's home is his castle, and an oligarch's home is... Oh, hang on, I'm just reading some more of the spokeswoman's outpourings, and apparently this isn't even his home. Deripaska says it is owned by some family members. I must say, it's really great to see Oleg supporting British investigative journalism, even with all the stuff he has going on in his life right now. Where this type of guy is concerned, it normally takes really dogged reporters a year to discover who owns the shell company that owns the shell company that owns the shell company that owns the house. Furthermore, we must thank Deripaska or some of his family members for enabling another great British pastime, looking askance at what people have done to their houses. After all, we lay our scene in Belgravia, one of various areas in the royal borough of Kensington and Chelsea that a previous social class of occupants judge has completely gone, I'm afraid. Or, rather, completely gone. In many ways, I'm all for a new breed of horror moving in. Ring the changes, you know? But funny to think that Deripaska's house was once owned by politician and Category 5 diarist Chips Channon, who, incidentally, was not held back by self-doubt in his interior's vision. As he wrote of a new scheme for the Belgrave Square dining room, it will shock and stagger London. And, naturally, they talked of little else in the East End. Anyway, Edward VIII and Mrs Simpson came to dinner there one night in 1936, and, according to Channon, the doors were flung open, and there was a pause as everyone's breath was taken away by the beauty of the dining room. Flash forward to 2022, and my breath was also taken away by the video shot this week 
by the protesters from inside the historic house. Blonde wood floors and a glass banister. Literally worse than the abdication. The occupiers were eventually arrested, despite attempts to settle in for longer. According to reports, when they caught sight of some people looking out of the windows of the next-door house, one called over, We are your new neighbours. We'll come over tomorrow with some brisket. Brisket? A slightly surreal detail. Isn't the offering cliché a cup of sugar? Or, in this locale, a cup of green juice? Perhaps the protester is American. Like Chips Channon. As for the Met, this is, without question, another great look from its spring collection, fresh off being found last week to have breached the rights of the organisers of the Sarah Everard vigil. Winter, meanwhile, was enlivened by its declaration that it does not investigate historical crimes. Maybe this week's alleged crime found itself in a liminal time zone. It was not technically historical, being ongoing, and therefore could be investigated by as many officers as were available, minus the one serving WhatsApp suspensions and whatnot. And yet, a friend recently observed a burglary in progress, and no squad car came because of what he was told was a lack of available resource. When he followed up, he was invited to make an appointment to discuss the incident so officers could gather a statement. In the end, then, I can't help feeling Monday's ridiculous tableau in Belgrave Square is symbolic of a wider discombobulation, as London grad struggles with the pivot to this new era. A whole series of compromised institutions, from the legal profession to the police to the politicians, are going to require a significant reset if we truly do mean to stop enabling some of the worst individuals in the world at the expense of pretty much everyone else. Nothing wrong with being polite, of course, but both literally and metaphorically, we really don't have to fall over ourselves running to assist these people. That was Never a Police Officer Around When You Want One Unless You're an Oligarch by Marina Hyde Read by Colleen Prendergast Next He's considered a podcasting powerhouse and presenters strive to emulate Ira Glass's style the world over. As he prepares to bring his new live show to the UK, the host of the hit radio series, This American Life, talks about fairness, podcast voice, and why Steve Martin has got it all wrong. This piece is read by Evelyn Miller. Ira Glass is a few minutes late for our interview by video chat. And when he does arrive, he turns on the camera before he's settled down. So I watch as he removes his cycling detritus, blows his nose and tidies his desk. When he finally speaks, he forgets to turn off the mute button. Despite being one of the most revered interviewers in the US, winner of every award from a Peabody to a George Polk, Glass is not a very smooth interviewee. I feel like I'm giving you too many answers to your questions. I know you'll just pick whichever ones you want, but of course I'm editing as I'm speaking to you, so I'm thinking... Okay, that was good. No, that was pointless, he says at one point, with a laugh that is equal parts angst and amusement. Glass, who has the nasal voice and nerdily handsome looks of an attractive suburban maths teacher, is the founder and host of the long-running radio show and podcast, This American Life. He started it in the mid-90s, 
with the objective to tell stories through interviews and narrative about normal people. Not rich people, not famous ones, not beautiful ones. Just people. It now gets more than 4 million listeners every week and is widely credited with starting the podcast revolution. If podcasting is to the 2020s what stand-up comedy was to the 1970s, Glass is podcasting Steve Martin, the man who showed how big it could be. Although when I say that to him, he says with mock but actually a bit real outrage that Martin has a podcast in his new TV show, Only Murders in the Building. He does the sound all wrong. It's a crime. People on that show should know how to place a microphone. Typical This American Life episodes include 24 Hours in a Diner, in which the reporters chat with the patrons who come in, or interviewing asylum seekers in a refugee camp in Mexico as they wait to hear if they can get into the US. That last episode won a Pulitzer, and is an example of how the show, to my mind, has become more political over the past five years, while staying true to its original mission of focusing on people's stories. As a staff, we became very obsessed with immigration policy under President Trump, but I feel like those are the stories that you have to trick the audience into listening to, not because they're bad people, but because the story's not that complicated, Glass says. So people are like, yeah, I get it. It's really sad. You have to be cunning in the way you begin. You need something funny at the top. And so we start with a little kid in the tent camp just charming the pants off everybody. Then we pull back. Does he think the show has become more serious than it was a decade ago, when they made episodes such as a reporter getting over a breakup by learning how to write the perfect love song, or David Sedaris? whom Glass discovered and launched doing his food shopping in Paris. I think the show has suffered since the pandemic, as it's been a very serious show. All of us are stuck in our houses and there are big, serious things to document. When we started, we wanted it to be the best journalism it could be, but we were also, very consciously and unashamedly, just out to amuse. So I think our best episodes are funny for quite a bit and then get serious, like an old-fashioned Broadway musical. For this reason, his favourite episode is 129, Cars, which follows a car dealership trying to sell its monthly quota. Basically, Glen Glary, Glen Ross with Chryslers. There's a lot of cursing in that. I love cursing, he says. As a teenager, Glass was more interested in comedians than journalists. He has parlayed his radio success into live events, including a deeply improbable yet critically acclaimed This American Life live show six years ago which featured glass and professional dancers. Now he's coming to the UK with Seven Things I've Learned, an evening with Ira Glass. Did he not want to wait a bit longer so he could learn more and round it up to ten? I feel like with ten, you feel the audience ticking them off, he says. Hyperconscious as always about the interplay between story structure and the listener's interest levels. With the content, however, he's more relaxed. The seven things change depending on my mood. So it's a mix of some things that took me a long time to figure out, like how to tell a story on the radio, and then some things that just seem like fun things to tell an audience. No other modern radio show has been as influential as This American Life. Now loads of shows do non-fiction, long-form narratives, but This American Life was the one that made them big. And it's great for me that so many people do it because it's become easier to hire people, Glass says, unfussed by the copycats. Radio controllers used to ask him when he would get a real presenter because his informal style, full of pauses and beats, was so different from the Kent Brockman-like voice American listeners were used to. His style has since become so ubiquitous, it's the voice of every podcast. Podcast voice. Can he hear it when other presenters copy him? Yeah, he says, a little embarrassed, and then he pucks up again. 
But it's very gratifying that people notice the work and think, oh, that looks fun. If I'd had the mind to want something, that would have been a good thing to want. Instead, I just thought, let's try to make this week's show and keep our jobs. Glass was born and brought up in Maryland, the son of a businessman and a marriage therapist. Like his mother, he's a talker. My mum was good at talking and my dad wasn't. A typical male-female relationship, he says. He was raised Jewish but is now an atheist. Although, he says, your cultural heritage isn't a suitcase you can leave at the airport. I say I can tell that from the writers he has showcased on This American Life. David Rakoff, John Ronson, Jonathan Gold, Shalom Oslander, even the non-Jewish Sederis. They all have a distinctly Jewish flavour to their writing, that highly self-aware comic outsider looking in. I never really thought about that, I just thought these people are pretty good. But I can see that, he says. This American Life has always mixed first-person pieces with reportage, but some questions have been raised about whether the two can mix on The Trojan Horse Affair, a recently released eight-part series on This American Life's offshoot podcast, Serial, which is produced with the New York Times, although Glass remains an editor on it. In 2013, Birmingham City Council received an anonymous letter claiming there was an Islamist plot to take over local schools. Teachers and governors were fired, and Peter Clark, a counter-terrorism expert who was appointed to conduct an inquiry, although most now accept the letter was a hoax. Serial regular Brian Reed and journalism student and Birmingham local Hamza Syed investigate the story, but some critics have questioned Syed's neutrality, especially as we find out on the podcast that he told a potential source that his aim was to change the narrative about the Trojan horse letter. The New York Times has already issued one correction regarding the misrepresentation of a source, and the secularism campaign group Humanists UK released a recording that, it says, showed its interview on the podcast was edited misleadingly. Glass says he hasn't seen the criticism, so can't address them specifically, so I ask him about the occasional shading between activism and journalism. How can a story be objective if a journalist begins with a specific aim? I'm not someone who believes in objectivity. I think that's really a conversation that gets you nowhere. But I do believe in fairness, where all sources are treated equally and that's what we do. And there are definitely stories that we do here because we think, that seems kind of fucked up, he says. Glass doesn't often talk about his personal life on the show, but in 2017 he told listeners that he and Anna Hidalani, his wife of 12 years, had separated. The year before, he had told this paper that they regularly went to marriage counselling. Are there some problems just too big to talk out? In our case, talking was not the solution. There was a tremendous amount of talking, but, um, yeah, he says, with a subject's closed smile. Glass never wanted kids, but he's now in a relationship with a woman who has an eight-year-old son. I never understood why you'd want kids. It just seemed like so much work and what do you get out of it? And now I'm like... Oh, now I get it, he says, and laughs. Some things, it turns out, can't be talked through. They need to be experienced. Our time is up, and I tell Glass I will let him get on with his working day, and his face lightens, eager to be back in the more comfortable seat of the interviewer rather than the interviewed. Okay, cool, bye, bye, uh, bye, he says as he tries, and fails, to turn off the video chat. Until I finally put him out of his misery and turn it off for him. That was This American Life's Ira Glass. We do stories where we think that seems messed up by Hadley Freeman. Read by Evelyn Miller. 
We'll be back after this short break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Weekend. Now, after years of holding it together, people are embracing the comforts of depravity. In a seemingly direct departure from the cottagecore influence of early pandemic days, Carrie Paul explores the concept of slobbing out and giving up. Read by Colleen Prendergast. At some point in the stretch of days between the start of the pandemic's third year and the feared launch of World War III, a new phrase entered the zeitgeist, a mysterious harbinger of an age to come. People were going goblin mode. The term embraces the comforts of depravity. Spending the day in bed watching 90-day fiancé on mute while scrolling endlessly through social media pouring the end of a bag of chips in your mouth, downing Eggo toaster oven waffles with hot sauce over the sink because you can't be bothered to put them on a plate, leaving the house in your pyjamas and socks only to get a single diet coke from the bodega. Inherent to the phrase is the idea that it can be switched on and off, said Dave McNamee, a self-described real-life goblin whose tweet about goblin mode recently went viral. Goblin mode is not a permanent identity, he said, but a frame of mind. Goblin mode is like when you wake up at 2am and shuffle into the kitchen, wearing nothing but a long t-shirt to make a weird snack like melted cheese on saltines, he said. It's about a complete lack of aesthetic. Because why would a goblin care what they look like? Why would a goblin care about presentation? First appearing on Twitter as early as 2009, Goblin Mode has also been linked by some to a viral Reddit post from a user claiming to secretly walk around their house like a goblin, collecting trinkets and making goblin noises. But according to Google Trends, it started to rise in popularity in early February and spiked after a doctored headline attributed a quote with the phrase to Kanye West muse and it girl of the moment, Julia Fox. Just for the record, I have never used the term goblin mode, Fox later clarified in an Instagram story. The Twitter user who made up the Fox quote as a joke said that while the headline was fake, she believes goblin mode is a very real phenomenon. Goblin mode is kind of the opposite of trying to better yourself, says Juniper, who declined to share her last name. I think that's the kind of energy that we're giving going into 2022. Everyone's just kind of wild and insane right now. On TikTok, hashtag goblin mode is affixed to videos of everything from smoking weed alone and getting scared to not taking your meds and 
hoarding weird shit just in case you run out. In other videos, it is associated with women wearing no makeup and mismatched sweatsuits, speaking confessional style into the camera. The trend represents a direct departure from the hyper-curated cottagecore influence of early pandemic days, a standout trend of 2020 that included pastel colours, bucolic scenery and the showcasing of wholesome homemaking skills, such as baking and embroidery. Cottagecore thrived under the wistful ethos of making the best of what many people assumed would be only a few boring weeks at home in 2020. But as the pandemic wears on endlessly and the chaos of current events worsens, people feel cheated by the system and have rejected such goals. Peter Hayes, a Bay Area tech worker who says he and his friends have jokingly called themselves goblins, said the term has taken off as the pandemic eliminated the need to keep up appearances. At home, there's no social pressure to follow norms, so you sort of lose the habit, he says. There's also a feeling that we're all fucked, so why bother? On TikTok, hashtag goblin mode is often accompanied by the adjacent phrase hashtag feral girl summer. That hashtag has 366,000 views and features videos of users proclaiming to be the opposite of that girl, a highly curated aesthetic popular on TikTok in recent years. There are nearly 3 billion views on videos using hashtag that girl, many of them show influencers organising pristine refrigerators full of freshly cut vegetables, making organic breakfasts and doing elaborate skincare routines. You have to start romanticising your life, they tell us as they make green tea lattes at home. The trend sets an unrealistic standard for girls to think that if they aren't waking up early to exercise, their lives are not put together, one blog indictment of that girl culture reads. I have absolutely no interest in being that girl, one video with 160,000 views says, I will never wake up at 5am and drink green juices and be hyper-organised. I will, instead, be in 4am Reddit holes, diet coke first thing in the morning, and fistfuls of raw pasta as a snack. Though they do not explicitly use the term goblin mode, videos expressing similar ideologies have been rising in popularity. My body is a garbage can with an expiration date, and I got no time for healthy shit, one with 90,000 views says. I love barely holding on to my sanity and making awful, selfish choices and participating in unhealthy habits and coping mechanisms, said another with 325,000 views. The Goblin Mode umbrella can encapsulate many kinds of aesthetics and behaviours, says Kat Marnell, an author who has been tweeting extensively in recent weeks about entering Goblin Mode herself. Although many people tweeting about Goblin Mode have characterised it as an almost spiritual level embrace of our most debased tendencies, Marnell says there is healthy Goblin Mode and destructive Goblin Mode. For her, it embodies a certain air of harmless mischief. The power of goblin mode is that it takes over your body, she says. It is a scrambling of the brain. It's when you act crazy and you enter a very mythological space. You want to jump on the back of a salamander and make trouble. 
Call it a vibe shift or a logical progression into nihilism after years of pandemic-induced disappointment, but goblin mode is here to stay. And why shouldn't it? Who were we trying to impress, anyway? As one hashtag goblin mode audio says, If you can't handle me in goblin mode, you don't deserve me at my sleigh. It is cool to be a goblin, Marnell says. Everyone is so perfect all the time online. It is good to get in touch with the strange little creature that lives inside you. That was Slobbing Out and Giving Up. Why are so many people going goblin mode? By Carrie Paul. Read by Colleen Prendergast. Finally, despite coming from a privileged background and with a deep knowledge of the inner workings of the fashion world and endless connections, Adwa Boa has had to navigate many barriers throughout her career. Here she talks to Hannah J. Davis about mental health, addiction, transcending Eurocentric ideals, and ultimately, new beginnings. A word of warning, this article touches on mental health issues that some listeners may find distressing. Read by Evelyn Miller. A few weeks ago, Adoa Aboa experienced what she describes as a sombre moment. I was at my mum and dad's clearing out my childhood room, she says, her voice a little shaky. I was going through all these old vogues I had kept, and I was like, why did I do that? What was I looking at? Who was I looking at? Because no one in these magazines looks like me. Despite signing with the giant modelling agency Storm at 16, Aboa's self-esteem as a teenager and into her 20s was, she says, so low. I was on this trajectory of really wanting to be someone else. I couldn't count on my hands any models who looked like me who were killing it. Obviously, there was Jordan Dunn and Naomi Campbell, but she pauses. Sighs. I didn't have the emotional intelligence, nor the language, to articulate why I wasn't doing well. Why I wasn't in the places that I thought should have been an option for me. Why wasn't I being supported by British publications? I was like, is it me? What's wrong with me? Not in a kind of self-pitying way, but I just didn't understand. Now 29, Aboa is one of Britain's most recognisable and successful models, as likely to be seen endorsing Dior or Burberry as H&M or Gap. She was named Model of the Year by the British Fashion Council in 2017, and in the same year, memorably featured on the cover of Edward Enenfull's first issue of British Vogue, a vision of retro cool in a patterned headscarf and masses of blue eyeshadow. She's also an activist, having founded the organisation Girls Talk, which educates young women on topics including feminism, race, sex and body image in 2015. And now she has her first regular acting role in the new series of Netflix's Top Boy, one of the coolest shows on TV. It's hard to believe that Aboa ever felt like a misfit, and worse still, thought that it was somehow her fault. In fact, the Londoner always had the kind of star quality that marked her out as one to watch, if not by fashion's gatekeepers, then by those in the know. Her barefaced beauty, complete with a constellation of freckles, made her something of an it girl in the early 2010s, i.e. the Daily Mail started publishing articles about her tattoos. 
That role grew when she shaved off her previously relaxed copper hair into a gamine buzz cut in 2015. Aboa was deemed unconventionally beautiful by many in the media, perhaps a subtle way of saying that she did not fit Eurocentric beauty standards. For many more, she was the representation they had been yearning for. However, there were several years when it felt as if her career had stalled. It's a weird one, Aboa says, dialing in as she hot-foots it from central London to the airport, a place where she spends much of her time. She is based between the UK and LA. With the conversations that we've had since around race and diversity, we understand what was going on. But back then, I was like, I don't get it. I started at the same time as Cara Delevingne, maybe a little after Edie Campbell, but I hadn't really been given my moment. With my British Vogue cover, my career kind of took off. But I'd been modelling for a long time. I'd been waiting in the hope of getting my chance. Today, a boa's shaved head is gone, replaced by cornrows that cut across her scalp in entrancingly neat diagonal lines. Even so, she remains instantly recognisable. As much for her face, flanked by ears adorned from top to bottom with gold rings and precious trinkets, as her West London drawl. The daughter of Camilla Lothar, a British model turned influential talent agency boss, and Charles Aboa, who's from Ghana, once described as London's go-to location scout for editorial shoots, Aboa grew up in Notting Hill, immersed in the fashion business. Her younger sister, Kesewa, is an artist. Much has been written about her family's privilege. In a recent interview, the Lothar's ancestral home was brought up, to which Aboa, seemingly wearily, replied she would have to look that up. She was educated at Millfield School in Somerset, where current annual fees for boarding stand at around £40,000, and she has spoken frequently about her difficulties there, relaxing her hair to fit in with the white, straight-haired masses, but ending up with something that resembled, in her words, the end of a broom. She began using drugs heavily as a teen, and today she describes it as a deeply unhappy period. On graduating from Brunel University in 2013, she co-founded a casting agency before moving into modelling. But despite her connections, doors remained closed to her, and repeated rejections hit her hard. I think I went into it with a rose-tinted idea of what it could be, she says. Because of my mum being in the fashion industry and because I knew everyone, People probably assumed I was going to get these big jobs, but the industry was so different then. Besides, she says, she didn't feel as if she had much support. One would hope that you were in a team where they really believed in you. In 2015, she departed Storm for test management. While her recent bedroom clear-out was difficult, reminding her of the rejections of her early career, Aboa says it was also enlightening emphasising for her just how far fashion has come in a short space of time, in terms of embracing diversity. Of course, British Vogue is just one part of that world, but it is a big part. The aspirational style bible that for generations drip-fed teens like the young Aboa with images of mostly white, often stick-thin models, and impossibly expensive clothes. When she left the magazine in 2017, Former editor Alexandra Shulman told The Guardian that she had offered Aboa a Vogue cover, but Aboa had turned her down. Shulman also wondered if Aboa maybe knew she was going to get Ennenfull's first cover. I ask Aboa whether she remembers it that way. She hums for a second, before saying that she didn't pay much attention to Shulman's comments, 
Someone sent me the piece. She said something like I was the best kind of black girl. I can't even remember how she worded it, it was something quite weird. Shulman called her the perfect mixture of mixed race, sort of posh Notting Hill royalty, the perfect cover star. Absolutely no shade to her as an editor, but Enenful's cover made sense. It felt like a new beginning. I wanted to be part of that. Over email, Enenful, a friend of Aboa's, has only the highest praise for her, telling me he wanted to highlight the best of Britain in all of its unique, diverse and multi-talented glory. Adawa represented all of these facets for me. To see this black British woman leading the way in my industry while also drawing attention to important social issues was really inspiring. The cover came after a new beginning for Aboa herself. After spells in rehab and, in 2014, a suicide attempt that left her in a coma for four days, she took time out of the industry, getting treatment for the depression and addiction problems that had lingered since her teens. In a 2017 video interview with her mother, Camilla, Aboa describes not feeling able to share her depression with her family. Camilla admits that the family were all in denial, until you tried to kill yourself. Recovery and getting sober led her to work with non-profit organisations, before founding her own in 2015. People think Girls Talk came later when my career took off, but it was definitely birthed from the rock bottom that I'd been at, and the support that I'd been given. Aboa says, I'd been given tools for how to be honest for the first time. I was looking at things I'd been too scared to look at. Alongside global events that, pre-pandemic, took place everywhere from Italy to Ghana, Girls Talk now produces a podcast in which Aboa has fierce female chat and candid conversations about mental health and well-being. Guests have included novelists Bernadine Evaristo and Lisa Tadeo, activists Soma Sara and Jenea Future Khan, and fellow model Emily Radikowski. With Girls Talk, she says, she finally found her purpose, converting her trauma into something meaningful. A few days before we speak, a new report says that girls' mental health in the UK is on a precipice, with 11-year-old girls 30% more likely to suffer from anxiety and depression than boys. Aboa says it's terrifying, and we talk briefly about teens, online bullying, and the reactive nature of social media where people word vomit things they might regret, before she admits that these things consume her too. I'm turning 30 this year, and I don't know about you, but sometimes, I mean, my behaviour is so toxic on social media. I have to take a back seat and be like, the way I'm comparing myself to other people isn't healthy. It can be the weirdest things. Suddenly you're worrying about the fact that, obviously I'm being silly here, your ears aren't small enough. Even now, during London Fashion Week, it's like, I'm not doing the shows, I should be doing the shows. It's like, no, you're doing something amazing. You're getting this moment to be in this TV show. We put so much pressure on ourselves. So I can't even imagine what it must be like growing up now. It's very obvious with the information out there that no young girls should be on social media. As for her own social media posts, they lean more towards the artfully detached and carefree. Sure, there are glossy magazine shoots on her Instagram grid, but there are also snaps of her wearing mini mouse ears at Disneyland, and recently, a phallic cactus. After the murder of George Floyd and a renewed energy around the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, Aboa found her conversations on her Girls Talk podcast getting a lot deeper. Everyone had so much to say and everyone was going through such personal experiences, growth and sadness. It also led to a second Vogue cover, this time alongside Marcus Rashford, 
shot in the footballer's garden in Manchester for an issue spotlighting faces of hope. It was a huge moment, and one she almost turned down. At the time, Aboa said, she didn't think it was my place to be that person. I think it's because I hadn't really delved into race and my feelings around it and what I had been through. My mum's white, my dad's black, and there had been a lot of confusion personally as to how I felt about it all. And actually, it was great. There's a sense of gratitude in her voice as she describes championing the black community. I'm really happy that I did take that opportunity because I am very much part of that community. I am a black woman. I have a lot of things to say which I hadn't had the confidence to speak about. Suddenly, Aboa felt she could make her voice heard. When people said, it's not as bad here in the UK, others were standing up and saying, it is. There aren't guns, we aren't being shot at, but it's definitely here. Even so, there was discomfort mixed in with the epiphanies. She had, she says, a full-on identity crisis. It was a mad time and we were all having to look at ourselves. Within the realm of fashion, for example, I had this new confidence. I was like, I'm not going to tolerate someone doing my hair again who doesn't understand black hair. Not because I'm a diva, but because it's not right. Aboa had another realisation over lockdown, when she decided that if she wanted to become an actor, it was now or never. She previously had a bit part in the 2017 big-screen anime adaptation Ghost in the Shell with Scarlett Johansson. Her voice fizzes with excitement at the mention of Top Boy, the East London set drama that was resurrected by Netflix in 2019, six years after being cancelled by Channel 4. Executive produced by Canadian rapper Drake, the reboot upped the budget, chucking in a who's who of UK musicians including Dave and Little Sims, as well as bringing back original cast members such as Ashley Walters and Kano. The latest series ups the production sheen even further, with diversions into the drug trade in Spain and Morocco straight out of Narcos. It's mad, to be quite honest, Aboa laughs. I cannot even begin to tell you how much I wanted this role. I definitely sit on the more obsessive side of things in terms of my character. I'm obsessed with manifesting. I auditioned about three or four times and I was overwhelmed with how much I wanted it. It was so out of my comfort zone and such a challenge. Aboa is keen to stress that this is something she has wanted for a long time. At school, I wasn't passing with straight A's or anything like that, she says. So I really leaned into my more creative side. While experiments with the guitar proved unfruitful, theatre was my first love. I was shy and nervous at boarding school. I was away from home and away from my family and friends. Another girl had seen me sitting by myself all the time. She was like, this girl is quite depressed. So she asked me if I wanted to audition for the school play. We're still friends now. Aboa was part of the National Youth Theatre and did a degree in drama. Rather than being seduced by the bright lights of the modelling industry, it seemed she just wasn't in the right headspace for acting. After university, I didn't really have a good head on my shoulders. My work ethic wasn't necessarily that great. She was, she says, a bit distracted. By partying and all sorts of things. But before Covid, I knew that I really wanted to give it a chance. I got an agent and started doing acting classes. In Top Boy, she plays Bex, a love interest for Jasmine Jobson's tough-as-nails gang member Jack. It's not a big role, but it is a memorable one, as the decidedly middle-class addition to a show set in a working-class world. There's even a scene where another character ponders why Bex doesn't tap up the bank of mum and dad for a bigger flat. As someone in a heterosexual relationship, did the prospect of portraying a same-sex couple, and one that attracts negative attention in the series, phase her? I think the women's storylines stand alone, away from what's going on with the men, she says. You really get to know these women. 
But by no means do I think I understand homophobia, but I was able to talk to friends in the queer community and get an understanding of what they've had to deal with. And going back to what we've been speaking about, I understand discrimination. I hope that I've been able to tell the story authentically. What has it been like to engage with a series based on a world so different from her own background? London is filled with so many different people, she says. It's easy to say that we're all segregated and none of us mix, but living in West London, I've been around different types of people my whole entire life. I might have gone to private school, but I've been brought up around a multifaceted community. I don't think I've ever felt intimidated by being from a different world. Aboa has to catch her flight, but before she logs off, she tells me that she is already on cloud nine at the prospect of showing what she can do as an actor. A few days after we speak, she posts a childhood photo on Instagram, possibly one dug out in her bedroom clear-out. Unlike most people's childhood snaps, it was published in the triannual fashion magazine Pop and shot by the photographer Alice Hawkins. In it, Aboa is dressed smartly, a serious look on her face and her hair in braids, younger but in many ways identical. Alongside it runs the caption, by popular demand, shy and 12 years old, haven't changed at all. Aboa's life has changed since those days, and yet in many ways she stayed the same, as the world has changed around her. The picture reminds me of something she told me about her dad. He turned to me years ago and said, I was just waiting for you to realise what you are capable of achieving. Binning her old magazines might have been a wrench, but it reminded her that she was always on the right track. That was Adwa Boa on acting, recovery and her racial awakening. I am a black woman, I have a lot to say, by Hannah J. Davis. Read by Evelyn Miller. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. If you're enjoying it, please make sure to like, subscribe to and rate the podcast. Just search for Weekend wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you have some time, The Guardian is running a big podcast survey for the next couple of weeks and we would love as many people as possible to take part. So if you'd like to share some thoughts, just click on the link which we'll include in today's episode description. This week's articles were read by Colleen Prendergast and Evelyn Miller and presented by me, Savannah Ayode-Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter, original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producers are Danielle Stevens, Max Anderson and Nicole Jackson. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.